You're listening to audio from Risen Life Fellowship. If you'd like to learn more about our church or donate to this ministry, please visit risenlifefellowship.com. Well, good morning, everybody. Everybody doing all right? I love that worship. Christ be magnified. Amen. It's a pleasure to be with you all uh, again. Um, Today we're going to be continuing our study of Ecclesiastes um, titled The the Pursuit of Purpose. Um, And we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 starting in verse 13 and going all the way through to the end of chapter 10 um, as well. Um, the last few chapters of Ecclesiastes, uh, we've read about godly wisdom and, and the, the priority that it needs to be in our lives. And in this passage, we'll look at folly, which is the opposite of wisdom. And we'll compare the two and see the many dangers of folliness and how to avoid it and the effect that it has on us and the world and the authority in our world and um, just our relationships Uh, So if you're not already there, um, let's turn to Ecclesiastes 9, starting in 13, and I'll ask that you you stand with me as we we read through the passage here. So Ecclesiastes 9, 13, I'll be reading ESV. Um, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise Heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks Since he says to everyone that he is the fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them. He who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. the The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the Son of nobility, and your princes feast at a proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. All right, will you pray with me? Lord, I just uh, thank you for this day, and um, thank you for equipping me and for this congregation willing to come and learn about your word, Lord. And I just pray that you illuminate our minds this difficult passage in Ecclesiastes and show us how we can um, 
pursue wisdom, and I pray that you just illuminate the folly in our lives and where we're walking down the wrong path, Lord. And I just pray that you pierce our hearts and you convict each one of us, Lord, and we come to know you um, with, a, with more fervor and knowledge and wisdom, Lord, and that we show that to our peers and our coworkers and our family, Lord, that you just send us out as shining lights, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so if you can't tell, this is a hard text because... There are a collection of verses in this passage that, um, on the surface, just seem disconnected and unrelating, and it's, but we're going to, it all relates, trust me. But it's also difficult because Kohelet, the teacher who Simon is, is writing his perspective from, or not Simon, Solomon, um, it's hard because Kohelet's going to say some hard things like, smart people do this and dumb people do this. <laughs> And, and I've found myself, I've found myself on the dumb side far more than the, the wise side or the smart side in my life. And, and I'll, I'll, I think that you'll find yourself there as well as we, as we go through this text. So we'll begin today by comparing wisdom and, and folly. And I want to start in chapter 10 and then come back later to the story that we see Solomon tell in, at the end of chapter 9. Um, but let's look at verse 2 um, and the rest of chapter 10, and we need to ask the question, what is folly, and, and how do we avoid it, and, and what is wisdom, you know, what is spiritual wisdom, and these are questions that Solomon takes up in this passage and kind of uh, compares the two. So this brings me to my first point today, and that is interpreting wisdom from folly. And, you know, someone once explained wisdom to me as given an amount of known information or knowledge, wisdom is how that knowledge impacts your thoughts, decisions, and actions. And I, I generally agree with this definition, how you let the information you consume in, impact your decisions, but in order to distinguish between wisdom, which is spiritual wisdom, and folly, which is worldly wisdom, we have to ask, what is the foundation of the information consumed? What is the cornerstone of our, our wisdom, what we would consider wisdom, and what we build our lives on? Is, it, is the cornerstone of our lives built on the, the Word of God, or is it built on selfishness and subjectiveness? and how we feel, and pride, and idolatry, and, and emotions. So, I think Solomon's going to, he's going to address this. So, let's take a look at uh, verse 2 of chapter 10. And he says, a wise, man, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. And all the Republicans said amen, right? <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how the Republican Party hasn't grabbed hold of that one yet. But this is obviously not talking about um, political affiliations, right? This is, and it's not an arbitrary direction. See, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right and a fool's heart to the left. It's not an arbitrary direction. And he's laying the basis of there's two paths that we can take, a fool's path or the wise path. And you see, biblically speaking, the right um, has a lot of significance, especially the right hand, and, and this is associated with it our strength and authority and, and blessing. So let's take a look at some verses. Um, there's several verses that associate the strength of God with uh, his right hand. So Psalm uh, chapter 20, verse 6 says, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Additionally, the Lord Jesus sits at the right hand of God. Hebrews 1, 3 says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Additionally, in the final judgment, God will place his children on the right and the others on the left. So we see in, in Matthew uh, chapter 25, verses 33 and 34, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. 
Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So what, what Solomon is saying is that whoever's heart is inclined to the right is inclined to, to what is correct, to what is, what is righteous, what is wise. You know, a heart in submission to the Lord is a heart inclined to the right. A heart that says, I am nothing apart from the wisdom and the heart of the Lord. Now those whose hearts are inclined to the left are inclined to, to foolishness, to unrighteousness, to selfishness. A heart that says, I'm good enough, I'm wise in my own ways. And you see, folliness is, is inclined to the left. It's inclined to, to foolishness. And folliness is not an issue of the mind. When you think of a fool, you may think of someone that lacks intelligence, but folliness is not an issue of the mind, but of the heart. You see, it's not someone with a, a low IQ. It's someone who lacks the proper fear of God, as we've read that the beginning of wisdom is, starts with the, the fear of God. And how often do we see very intelligent people in our society succumb to folly by denying God, denying the existence of God? You see, this is a very under-the-sun thinking as has been a theme throughout Ecclesiastes. Under the sun is not a location, but rather a condition, a condition of the heart that's longing for answers, that's longing for safety and security that won't be found under the sun. That is folliness. So Solomon is laying out two paths we can take, and this inclination to the left, to folliness, to selfishness, to self-wisdom, leads, leads them down the wrong path the path of the world. So you see, the, the world is, is looking for direction on this path in all the wrong places. You know, following their own heart and the subjectiveness of, of which way they, they feel is correct. Why I feel this way is correct. Although Jeremiah 17, verse 9 tells us, the heart is deceitful. Above all things, and desperately sick, who can understand it? You see, we'll talk about it a little bit more, a little bit more but it's so, our world is so riddled by subjectiveness and how we feel, you know. How we feel is the only thing that matters. Which path it leads us on doesn't matter as long as it's how we feel. But as people who are, are pursuing a spiritual wisdom... We know we can't trust our feelings. Because I don't always feel like pursuing righteousness. I don't always feel like walking down the path of the Lord, the path where who's inclined to the right. You know, what I sometimes want is my is my own path, my own will, but a pursuit of spiritual wisdom is it's abandoning my own desires for the love of the Lord. It's laying down what I want and doing what is right. That's spiritual wisdom. Spiritual wisdom is, is choosing the path of the Lord when, when the path of our flesh seems so appetizing and right and full of virtues, when in reality this path leads to temporary pleasure and, and emptiness and, and despair. Verse 3 of chapter 10 even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. He says to everyone that he is the fool. And, and this road that the fool walks on is the, is the path of the fool. It's the, the path inclined to the left. And the fool believes they're on the right path. And they point to everyone on the other side, on the right path, declaring, it's you who's wrong, not me. You know, but the fool doesn't know where they're going. Verse 15 of chapter 10 says, The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. You see, on this path, the fool exhausts himself from his empty toil. They live their life as if it were meaningless, walking on and on with no real sense of direction, for they do not know the way to the city. 
you know, without, without God, I mean, our lives are meaningless. When you're walking on the path of the fool, not guided by the spiritual wisdom of the Lord, you might as well be on any path or on the side of the road because <laughs> it's, it's, it's meaningless. Solomon is saying the fool lacks sense in thinking he's on the right path. Through pointing at everyone on the right path, saying, you over there are the real fools, and just spewing, just spewing words and words and just emptiness and, and folly, you know, and, and with this, through this, he's showing everyone that he, in fact, is the fool. The end of verse 3 tells us. It's important to understand the distinction Solomon is making here. A fool thinks they know everything. They think that they're right about everything. They think they're on the right path, and you can't sway them otherwise. But a wise person understands what they don't know. A wise person says, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm on the wrong path, and God, I need you to show me the way to the right path. That's the words of a wise person. A wise person may be a believer who says, you know, I've spent past few months walking down the wrong path and I need some accountability and discipleship from my brothers to lead me back on the right path. I know I'm in the wrong. That's the words of a wise person. A wise person understands their need for righteousness and they understand their need for being coerced along the right path by the hand of the Lord and by brothers and sisters in Christ. A wise person understands the hopelessness of self-knowledge and clings to the wisdom of the Lord because they fear Him and, and they're in surrenderance to Him. That is a wise person. Further down in chapter 10, Solomon makes a further distinction between the wise and the folly in verses 12 through 14. Verse 12, he says, The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. You see, someone who has wise speech is, is generally going to gain a good reputation for themselves. Someone who is respectable speaks, you know, with a, you know, and acts above reproach and speaks wise things. That's generally going to gain you a good reputation. You're generally not going to be considered as an annoying person who just spews off information or thoughts. Um, but the fool who spews folly out of their mouth to gain favor to defend their foolishness only consumes him, Solomon is saying here. And I think that we all know somebody that will say anything to save themselves or do anything to get ahead, maybe in the workplace or just someone we've crossed paths with in our life. Everyone knows that person that always talks about themselves. And never asks how you are. They always talk about their accomplishments or their pain and their suffering, and they never bother to ask, you know, how you are. It's all about them. And you know, unfortunately, this thinking has infiltrated the church today. You know, it becomes more about what can I get from this church on Sunday morning and less about what can I give to this church on Sunday morning. It leads to a consumer mentality. How much can I get from this church? Is this church checking all of my boxes? Am I checking the boxes of the church? That's not what the folly thinks. Verse 14, a fool multiplies his words, though no man knows what is to be and who can tell him what will be after him. A fool is quick to speak and speaks many empty words, verse 14 tells us. And a fool thinks they know what will be after them, but is ultimately folly. Those who words, whose words are driven by immaturity, always saying awkward or inappropriate things, or, are wor or words driven by immorality or lustfulness or, or greed instead of fruits of the Spirit. You know, these kinds of people are just generally unpleasant to be around, not particularly 
edifying those around them. I think we've all maybe had a, a workplace with people like these. And verse 13 also tells us the beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness and the end of his talk is evil madness. You see, a fool's words reap folly and, and harvest madness. You know, what begins with folly will always end with madness and confusion. Anything grounded in subjectiveness cannot lead to objectiveness. Anything grounded in non-truth can't lead to truth. It's building your house on sand except instead of the solid rock of the word. But on the other hand, a wise person is slow to speak and quick to listen, James 1.19 tells us. A wise person knows when to keep their opinion to themselves instead of spouting off every thought that comes to their head. Wanting their, wanting their opinions and thoughts to be known and held on high regard. You know, this is not what a wise person does. And I, I hope this morning that you, you find yourself on the right side of these two kinds of people. I hope you can reflect on your interactions with your coworkers and, and your friends and your church body and be confident of your reputation as someone who speaks out of wisdom and not fallenness. Are you quick to speak and share every little thought and opinion? Or are you slow to speak and quick to listen and quick to love and quick to have meekness and wisdom and gratitude and love? And You know, I hope that that is your reputation today as a believer, as someone in the church and someone who goes into your workspace and is supposed to be a light. Continuing back up at uh, verses 4 through 7 of chapter 10, Solomon shifts the focus here from recognizing the folly in our own lives and in our peers' lives to, to recognizing folly in the lives of earthly rulers. This has been a topic recently of Solomon is talking about earthly rulers. And, you know, so often we find folliness and selfishness and pride and anger even in the lives of rulers and bosses and government and presidents, which is the kind of ruler Solomon also focuses on uh, in verse 4 and 9, 17. So verse 4 says, If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place. For calmness will lay great offenses to rest. He also describes this ruler back in nineteen or chapter nine, verses seventeen. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. You see, it's it's better to be wise and quiet than to be a ruler who gains power by wrath and intimidation and an empty shouting. It's better to just be wise and to be quiet sometimes. You know, some of you here may have had or, or currently have maybe a boss or a manager or a coworker like this, or maybe a, a parent who has exemplified these characteristics in the home. I mean, that's a sad picture, but it's often a reality. You know, the kind of leader whose greatest power is the power to threaten, who lord their authority over everyone, you know, motivation through abuse and, and respect through command. And in verses 5 through 7, Solomon will talk about the result of this fallenness and the position of rulers and how it trickles down into society, and how errors in leadership result in an evil in the society, and in an evil environment. And this leads me to my next point, which is the impact of folliness. 
chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were in an, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and, and princes walking on the ground like slaves. See, in response to this folly and a scene in authority, Solomon is painting a picture here of a twisted nation. He's not talking about the rich here in a, in a negative perspective, rather, you know, as someone who is greedy or prideful or arrogant, like we typically see the rich portrayed in Scripture. He's simply stating here that this type of folly authority results in an upside-down society. Those who are rich in wisdom and knowledge and experience are often the times that we see in a low place. Those who know what to do and those who have wisdom and are rich with knowledge and experience are in low places in our society. It's an upside-down society. And, and, and these things aren't the way that they're meant to be. You know, People with zero wisdom or experience are, are placed on a pedestal, right? You know, with the power of social media, you can go viral one night and be held on a pedestal by the nation the next day. I mean, it's, it's so twisted. It's upside down. So, I mean, how accurate of a description is this of our, of our world that we currently live in, especially this nation? You know, we live in a world that is riddled by subjectiveness, riddled with subjectiveness and with folly. You know, subjective truth is praised when objective truth is trampled on. You see, our, our nation is no longer just anti-God. They're, they're anti-truth. They're anti-objectiveness. There's no such thing as objective truth in the world. Everything is backwards under this kind of authority. Verse 18 of chapter 10 through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the, the house leaks. You see, lazy rulers bring down the house of the nation. You know, folly leads to selfishness and laziness. And Solomon's saying the house caves in under this kind of authority. When you're lazy and you don't upkeep the house, when there's no wisdom, it's starting to sag, the roof sags, and you begin to compromise. Everything is backwards. You see, people who don't work get paid, and you find parents facing jail time for saying their female daughter is not a boy. And genuine love is viewed as hate, and the love of sin is praised. You find a corrupt workplace that is filled with bias and gossip and arrogance. And politics, rather than love and, and service and, and humility. It's backwards. Verses 8 and 9 of chapter 10 continue this thought of a backward society and a backwards world and the dangers of folly and the repercussions and impact of folly. Verses 8 and 9, he says, He who digs a pit will fall into it and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who queries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. Now, Solomon here is speaking metaphorically before we start taking things literally, and, and um, it's very a very proverbial text, right? Uh, wisdom literature. So he's not just speaking about random walls and, and pits. But I think that this verse can be read in parallel with uh, Psalm chapter 7, verses 14 through 16, which says, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his head, 
and on his own skull, his violence descends. See, Solomon is saying when you're on the path of folly, there's, there's dangers. There's dangers that are birthed from the evil and mischief in your heart. You dig a pit and you fall in a pit of your own despair and your own mischief and your own sin. On the path of folly, you find these pits of mischief and violence and wrath that you fall into. And on the left, you have walls as well. And when you break the walls, snakes erupt. You see, when a fool encounters walls on the left, and when they encounter walls in life, they don't ask questions. They just, they just break it down, right? They don't care about the repercussions. They don't care if there's snakes in there. A fool is not concerned with, with why a wall might be there on his path. He only knows that it's in his path, and he needs to destroy it to get what he wants. Right? Without first studying its purpose. You know, why is this wall here to begin with? They just destroy it only to find snakes and, and suffering and pain. But one thing the fool can't deny is that the wall is there, right? Just as the work of the law is written on our hearts. Romans 2. Verse 15 tells us, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. The fool can't deny that the wall is there. They just, they just break it down, suppressing the truth, which results in pain and, and suffering and death. Just as an alcoholic says, one more drink. An adulterer enjoys another indulgence in lustfulness. Just one more indulgence. Just one more wall that I can break down. And they say, how can it be wrong when it feels so right? Why would I keep a wall there if it feels so good to break it down and what's on the other side is brings pleasure to me. Walls in marriage. Walls in sexuality. Walls protecting innocent lives in the womb. They break down God's walls and they wonder why all these snakes erupt from them, why all these problems start surfacing, right? but we're not too far from this ourselves. Just as we found a wall in the garden guarding us from death and separation from God. But as the serpent and our flesh and our desire consumed us, we tore the wall down. Just as we see the folly do in this passage in Ecclesiastes. We tore the wall down without a second thought on why the wall was there and we, we found death and, and sin and suffering. You see, the fool will use brute force to overcome these walls and pits and through this toil causes pain and strife and suffering as depicted in verse 10. If the iron is blunt, one is not sharp in the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one succeed. You see, wielding folly is like wielding a dull axe. You're trying to do a job that's not intended to be done using a tool that's not intended for the job. You know, just as a fool thinks they're on the right path, they think they have the right tool for the job. They attempt to tear down all these obstacles in their path of the tool that's not supposed to be used for this job and for a job that's not intended to be done. The wall is supposed to remain there. It's there for a reason. Have you ever heard the saying, work harder, or work smarter, not harder? 
right? Live in harmony with the walls. Don't spend so much time breaking them down. Live in harmony. Work smarter, not harder. It's a lot of work and a lot of problems that come from breaking down a wall with a dull axe. See, wisdom helps one succeed. Solomon proclaims, um, wisdom helps one succeed. The folly of the world is like a dull blade. But the wisdom of the Lord is, is sharpened, right? Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, as Hebrews 4.12 tells us. And on the other side of this, verse 11 says, If the serpent bites before it's charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. And don't worry, I'm, about, I'm not about to bring out the snakes, all right? Not about to be charming snakes. Um, but if the serpent bites before it is charmed, there's no advantage to, to the charmer. You know, what does this mean? Now, this is talking about those who are on the right path that fall into folly, right? That we have a job to do. We can't be lazy. We can't be hesitant, Right? We see the repercussion here of sin, of omission. Which is knowing what you should do, knowing what God is calling you to do, knowing what is right, and knowing what is holy, but, but waiting too long, becoming hesitant in the flesh, slipping away into folly, and then disobeying God, instead of acting in wisdom and obedience. There, too, snakes can be found ready to devour you, right? We have a job to do as Christians, and when we are hesitant and we delay, when we let thoughts creep in and temptations arise, and when we delay in the purpose of our hearts and God's purpose, there, too, folly can be found. There, too, snakes are found, See, Paul urges us in 2 Corinthians 10.5 to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now this is said to prepare us so that we don't fall into this sin of omission, disobedience when we have a calling and when we have a known purpose and a known conscious of what we should do and we don't do it. That is omission of sin, sin of omission. But when we take every thought captive, you know, in order to prevent this omission from happening, the moment you have an idle thought that paralyzes you, we're called to, to capture and dispose of it. And to not let it form into a greater temptation that then captures us. It in turn, it captures us and it paralyzes us. We fall just right back on the path of the folly. We're no different. We must stop temptations at, at the source before it turns around and bites us, as the snake does in this, in this passage. It doesn't take but a little bit of folly to outweigh wisdom and outweigh holiness in our lives. As mentioned in verse 18 of 9, one sinner destroys much good. As well as, as well as the illustration in, in um, verse 1 of chapter 10, let's go back and look at that, you know, on the topic of, you know, as believers who are on the right path, we're not invincible to falling into folly, right? We fall into folly through bad choices, through not making choices, you know, omission. And this really hurts our witness. This hurts our witness. You know, as, as believers on the right path, we are meant to be a shining light and to be an example to the world, to stand apart. Chapter 10, verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. 
You see, in the example given by Kohelet here, he lays out a he lays out an illustration of something that is supposed to be delightful, right? Pleasurable, good, and pure, and 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 clean, and it's it's laid out as a centerpiece for all to be enjoyed. You know, in ancient times, this this oil would be put out as an aromatic on the table, and it would it would leave a, a fresh smelling, pure, clean aroma in the house, something to be enjoyed by guests. But in his example, just a few dead flies make the ointment give off a stench, which easily outweighs the sweet-smelling aroma of the perfumer's oil. So, too, just a little bit of folly or sin overpowers wisdom and honor, as stated in this verse. Just an ounce of sin outweighs the beauty of wisdom and righteousness and holiness. It doesn't take much. You know, has anybody ever made a bad impression on somebody, a bad first impression? I mean, I, I have plenty of times. But they say it takes like 20 good second impressions to outdo or undo your first bad impression. It takes that many other impressions for them to change their mind about you, Right? Just a little bit of folly, just a little bit of sin outweighs wisdom and righteousness and holiness. You know, even in our relationships with others, it only takes one bad impression to ruin maybe even the most righteous of reputations. In a marriage, you know, how much trust needs to be regained after an affair, after maybe many, many, many years of faithfulness, right? Just that one sin takes you back to the beginning. You have to regain so much trust, and so much is destroyed by just one sin. You know, how much of a, a church leader's reputation is destroyed after one bad choice? Again, maybe after many years of pursuing sanctification and wisdom and being edifying to that church, one bad decision and you lose your trust. It doesn't take much at all. And that's what Solomon's saying here. Just a couple flies in the ointment ruins it, gives off a stench. See, in these, these examples... And the one given by Solomon run parallel with our relationship with God. You see, what is more good than living in perfect harmony with God in the garden? Walking with God himself through this garden. Nothing is more perfect than that, although one sin, one instance of deception, one instance of selfishness, one bite of a piece of fruit brought in separation and death and ruin and turmoil into this world and into the hearts of man. So too what the Bible defines as folly can so easily spoil wisdom and honor. So we've been talking about discerning wisdom from folly, wisdom that we see in our peers, wisdom that we see in authority, wisdom that we, or folly that we see in authority, folly that we see maybe in our brothers and sisters in Christ. And he's telling us how to act. He's telling us how to discern. But how do we respond? You know, How do we respond to the folliness in the workplace? How do we respond to the folliness of a nation, to the folliness of maybe a brother and sister in Christ? How do we respond to wicked authority? How do we respond to the folly on the path of the left that are pointing fingers at us? This leads me to my final point today, which is the influence 
of wisdom. So looking again at the second half of uh, verse 4 of chapter 10 says, If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. You see, there is a time and a place to make a stand for truth and for what is right. But this verse is saying to not immediately act on your response of your flesh, to make a stand. To take justice into your own hands the moment you get aggravated with a coworker or with a boss, right? To immediately rebel, to claim loudly that I have a right to be angry about this. This verse is saying, calmness will lay great offenses to rest. You see, we are called to love, to have a calm, quiet response that turns away anger. Wisdom has the power to influence the most furious of wrath. Romans chapter 12 17 through 21. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceable or peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, that's the perfect picture of how we respond to fallenness how influential wisdom is, how influential love is, a sacrificial love. And this is true not only of our relationships with authority, but with our peers and strangers and family and friends. It says we heap burning coals. This is burning coals of shame. We bring shame upon them by treating us this way, and we respond with, hey man, I'm sorry. That was my fault. And I'm sorry you feel this way, and you know, and just showing love to that person. It's hard. It's hard. It's saying you heap burning coals of shame on their head when you do that. Overcome evil with good. You know, when we respond to pointing fingers and disapproval and anger with love and service and sacrifice and favor, you know, that's, that's foreign to the world. They don't expect that. They expect a fight. They don't expect their feet to be washed. You know, even if we think our bosses or managers or leaders or coworkers are arrogant loudmouths, right? The reason wisdom responds this way and, this, and the way that Solomon promotes here is, and as does the rest of Scripture, is because this is the life that Jesus lived. And he's our example. Jesus did not rush to defend himself in the face of Pilate, saying buts and ifs and this and that's. And when Christ was being beaten and, and dragged to the cross, he did not call down the wrath of heaven, although he could have. He instead turned to them his other cheek also. Matthew 5, 39, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. 
It's not easy to not talk about the folly in the workplace and to, to state your opinion, right? How you feel about a leader, how you feel about a manager, a coworker, a friend, family member. You see, verse 20 of chapter 10. Even if your thought, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. You see, kings in ancient times had little spies everywhere. And they 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 gave messages by by air, by by bird, right? Um, but they would they would hire people and just their sole purpose was to be in the city and the community and, and to listen what people were saying about the king, and then they'd go and report it. You know, that was that was the culture of that time. So this this is suggestive saying here that, you know, don't say anything, even in your thoughts, because you don't know who's listening. You don't know who's listening. Don't say anything in the privacy of your bedroom or in the privacy of the break room. You don't know who's listening. You don't know who's going to run and tell every little thing. And that's, that's, what kind of reputation is that going to give you? You're stirring up the gossip. You're stirring up the arrogance and the sin and the folly. But this is true of God as well, our relationship with God. Not that he has spies, you know, he, he hears and knows everything, but he hears your thoughts and he knows your heart before you even come to him. See, character, your character is who you are when no one's looking, right? Who are you when no one's looking? Who are you when you're in the break room with the, the coworker that you're confident with, that you're comfortable with? It's not easy to love those on the left path. It's not easy. It's hard for me to always love people of the world. It's hard for me to serve co-workers to submit to authority in the workplace. It's hard for me to die to myself and show wisdom and sacrifice when, when I know I won't get it in return. But that's what we're called to do, right? We are called to astonish a world of folly by the way that we live. We are called to astonish them, for them to be taken aback, saying, whoa, I didn't expect this. Like, why are you acting like this? We are called to be lights. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that ye may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among you among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith I am glad and rejoice with you all Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. You see, we are truly in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation that, that pursues folly. But we were called to be blameless and innocent, shining as lights in the world, walking in the right path so that in the day of Christ, he will be proud of us. Now, having talked about this influence of wisdom, let's, let's look back at the story that Solomon tells us at the end of chapter 9, starting in verse 13. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. He's saying, I had this great story that influenced me, so, so listen up. There was a city, there was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came and found, or came against it, 
and besieged it, building great siege works against it. So, a little history lesson, siege, like besieging a, uh, a, a city is basically you set up a perimeter around the city with forces and artillery, and you just starve them out. Nothing can get in and nothing can come out, and you just wait. You just wait them out until they're too weak to, to fight, and you just overthrow them. That's what besieging is. But there was found in it a poor, wise man. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might. The, the, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler amongst fools. And wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. See, Solomon is stating here that, that wisdom is good and right and has the power to influence, the power of influence to overcome the great weapons of war, the greatest foes. A poor wise man delivered the city in his wisdom. But there's two takeaways from this story. You know, in our, in our pursuit of wisdom, we cannot always expect great reward or acknowledgement to be put on the pedestal for being wise or even reciprocation from those whom we, we, we show wisdom and show fruits of the Spirit. We can't always expect reciprocation. Just as the wise, poor man delivered the city and was, and was thrown to the wind, forgotten, words unheard. You know, there's, there's people in my life that I continue to show love and approach with spiritual wisdom only to be thrown to the wind like the old wise man in the city who saved the city and immediately forgotten. But you know what? That doesn't mean that we have any less calling to show love and any less calling to act in spiritual wisdom no matter the circumstance in the workplace, with peers, family members. In fact, you may never harvest what you sow by pursuing wisdom with those people. But that doesn't change our calling. We're called to love. And we're called to be blameless and innocent. And we're called to be lights to those people. You may always be met with folly in the workplace or with family or with authority, but that does not mean that you love any less. We aren't called to an easy life or an easy job. We're called to the right job and the right duty and the right purpose. In fact, Jesus told us that we'd be persecuted. He warned us. I don't know why we're surprised. The second takeaway is that Although wisdom is great, it all it takes is a little sin to ruin much good. Just as we've discussed in 9.13 and 10.1, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good, and dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. You see, spiritual wisdom is great, as we see in this story, and has the power to overcome the toughest battles and restore the most distant broken relationships. But all it takes is a couple flies and the perfume. You know, all it takes is that wise old man to say, you know what, nobody's listening to me. The city can ruin. All it takes is one husband to say, forget what the scripture commands and forget what work it would take. I'm not doing it. All it takes is one 
woman to say, I will not forgive. I will not forgive him. All it takes is for one of us to say, I don't care what it says, my money is mine, and I'll do what I want with my money. All it takes is one to say, forget the wisdom of God, I'll follow my own wisdom. I'll follow my own path. All it takes is a little bit of folly to outweigh wisdom and honor. If that's you this morning and you're on the verge of giving up, I want to encourage you to stay on the right path. Stay on the pursuit of wisdom and honor and righteousness. Continue loving that difficult coworker, that friend or family member. Continue showing them love and wisdom and sacrifice. Continue to love and serve your spouse. Continue to meet the folly of this world with love and spiritual wisdom, which has the power to soothe the strongest anger and overcome the wildest folly. And trust me, there's no lack of wild folly in our world. You see, Solomon rejoices at the thought of a nation that pursues wisdom in chapter 10, 16 through 17. Woe to you, O land, when your child, or when your king is a child and your princess feasts in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princess feasts at a proper time for strength and not for drunkenness, not for folly. They do what is appropriate. They're respectable leaders. And you know, we, we may never experience a nation like that here on earth that pursues wisdom over folly, but we store our hope in the promise of God to make a new earth and a new nation, right? Where there will be no more tears, no more folly, no more sin. I'll invite the band back up as we close. But you know, if you're here this morning and and your heart is inclined to the left. If your heart is inclined to folly and to pride or selfishness, meaninglessness, I ask that you come and you embrace the wisdom and the love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The only true wisdom an objective truth that we can have in this world. Everything else crumbles. You know, on, on Christ's path, there's no more confusion, there's no more pits of despair or pain, no more folly, no more snakes. You know, come and embrace the gift of eternal life. So on the day of judgment, you can sit at the right hand of the Father, and He will welcome you with open arms. You know, Christ died so that we no longer must pursue folly. No longer be slaves to sin. You know, Christ bore the weight of your sin on the cross so that you can have access to the right path, to, the, to eternal life and the unending love of God. Would you come? It doesn't take high IQ. It doesn't take the most intelligent of persons. Thank God, or I'd still be waiting. <laughs> um, I'm not the most intelligent person, but all it takes is the fear of the Lord. Lord, I, I, I'm sorry. I ask that you just bow your heads with me in prayer. If that's, if that's you this morning, you're on the left path. Just say, Lord, I'm on the wrong path. There's no truth in my life. There's no objectiveness in my life. And I don't know where I'm going. And maybe you're on the right path and you don't know where you're going. But wisdom is found in the Lord. 
His way is pure and right, and He will guide you. You know, if you're a believer here today, I ask that you evaluate your walk. You know, have you recently found yourself spending more time on the right path of wisdom or the left path of folly? It's easy to stray over there. It's appetizing. It looks good. It's easy to find yourself over there. You know, are you letting a little folly, a little sin, a little pet sin that you don't want to get rid of, are you letting that destroy the witness of those around you? It doesn't take much. That one instance of gossip, that one thing you say, oh, well, he's a Christian. That's how all Christians are. I'm never going to come to know Christ. It just takes a little bit of folly to ruin that witness. You know, are you speaking to your coworkers and peers with wisdom and love? Or are you seen as someone who speaks folly and holds judgment? Well, I urge you to call upon the Lord to bring you back to the path of righteousness. To take every thought captive so that you can fellowship with the Lord and that your unity with Him is not overthrown by a little bit of folly. Spend some time with the Lord this morning and draw near to Him, turning to grab His loving hand to pull you back to the path of righteousness. I'm going to give you some time to just pray, but we're going to move into a time of reflection of this great news of Christ. We're going to move into a time of reflection with communion. There's bread and cups in the back and you know, I would, I would ask that you, if you're a believer, I'd invite you to partake. But you know, if there's, if, there's, if there's sin in your life, if there's unrepentant sin, or if, if you're an unbeliever this morning, you know, I'd ask that you not partake, as the scriptures tell us. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So you pray and you come back to fellowship with the Lord if you need it. Come back to the right path. I'll give you a moment. Again, bread and cup are in the back whenever you're ready.